Hey, good morning, everyone. Sheesh. Okay, switch gears. Blue smoke coming out of my ears now. Let's see if I can change gears here. Um, thank you so much for carrying on while Marion and I were at our daughter's wedding last weekend. Uh, we certainly missed you. It was a real strange feeling when 10 o'clock Sunday morning rolled around, and I wasn't here. I was down there. But we were having a good time anyway. And actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about that this morning. You know, it was our first child's wedding. You know, Megan is our, our 26-year-old and, uh, and it was the first wedding for a, a child of ours. So it was obviously a big deal. You know, everything is new. You know, just like the first of anything is so new. Um, you know, but marriages, especially modern marriages, if you've been through them, they're kind of like buying or selling houses. A lot of details, a lot of stress, a lot of things going on. And we just happen to be doing both at the same time. So for this last month, these last few weeks leading up to um, the wedding last weekend, there was just so many details, so much stress, plus a lot of things that are moving and shaking toward the end of the year here as well. And so this weekend for me, because it turned out to be a whole weekend, uh, I was down in Rancho Bernardo at a winery that Megan found. And uh, so we got hotel rooms and we stayed Friday night and Saturday night. And so it was a whole weekend. This weekend for me was partially an exercise in contemplative presence because I had so many things spinning in my head. And I made it a point all weekend. I was saying, okay, Friday noon, shut it all off shut it all down and drive down there and just experience something completely different. And I had to really talk to myself about that because the details kept coming back in and the things kept coming back in. And then as we got down there, there was the stresses and the things that are going on within the wedding and within various people who were supposed to be doing certain things and they were getting kind of sideways. And I just had to stop and just come back to ground, come back to center and just stay present because this was a big weekend that I did not want to miss. There's so many things in my past that I've missed that I haven't walked away from with good memories and I really didn't want this weekend to be one of them. I wanted to be here and be there and really see what was going on and walk away with these vivid memories. And the whole weekend really went well. You know, as weddings go, this is one of the best ones I've ever been to. Just, just, yeah, I know I'm a little biased, but I mean, it just went well. All the logistics and everything, everything was beautiful. Of course, Megan was beautiful. Even Alex was beautiful, her groom. I mean, he, he looked great. It was just so nice to see all these things. In fact, there was only just a couple of uncomfortable moments that I recall. The first one was getting out of the car for the thing and realizing it was just hot and humid enough that no matter what I did, I was going to sweat in that suit. And that was not so comfortable. And the second one was the best man's toast. Have you ever had one of those things? You know, the, the maid of honor, she stood behind the head table and read, you know, some really beautiful and touching. They give the wireless mic to the best man and he runs out in front of the table and starts yelling and telling everybody his nicknames and this and that. And you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know. You're kind of sitting on the edge of the seat just hoping and praying it doesn't go too far south. And then at a certain point you're saying, okay, you done good, wrap it up, wrap it up. He did all right. It was all right on the edge, but it was all right. But other than that, everything just seemed to be part of the chord. You know, it was just mixed in so well and everything was, was going as it was supposed to go. The highlights for me, of course, are walking Megan down the, the aisle. I got to do that. And uh, just the feeling of having her on my arm and walking her down. Um, 
you know, Megan, during the ceremony, wiping Alex's tears away as the pastor was, was uh, doing the, the service. Actually, uh, months ago, Megan said, no offense, Dad, but we don't want you to do the ceremony. And I said, none taken, that's okay. They had this, this great pastor there who had been the family pastor on Alex's side for, for years, and he did a wonderful job. And so here are the two of them standing there facing each other in front of him, and Megan's wiping her tears and then reaching out and wiping Alex's tears. And uh, it was just great. She had me do a reading, however, and at the end of my reading, as I was walking back to my seat, I looked back at them and she mouthed, I love you, to me as I was walking away. And that's one of those moments that it's going to stay with me for the rest of my life. The vows that they wrote for each other were just so well done, so heartfelt, and, and yet funny, and so them. I mean, they just were them. It captured their personalities. And then after the ceremony, I got to walk up to Alex and congratulate, and I called him son. And he called me dad. <laughs> and that's just a weird feeling. I don't know, those of you who have gotten an in-law like that, a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law, it's just so interesting. This is my new son, you know? And I love the kid. He's great. We're so proud of him. And he looks like they're going to do so well together. These are all the things that I was experiencing that weekend. But I wanted to take you a little bit deeper and with Marion's permission to kind of look under the hood a little bit of our family so that I can make the point that I really want to make and what's been really speaking to me since this weekend and since this wedding. I'm Megan's stepfather. I'm not her biological father. And her father and, and Marion's marriage broke up early, early in Megan's life because of alcoholism. And it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time for Marion. It was a difficult time. Megan was only 10 months old when all this was happening. And subsequent to that, when she was only about four, after some custody fights and other things that were going on and, and inter-family squabbles that were happening that were making life so difficult, and Marion and I had met each other and then subsequently got married, um, her father died trying to detox himself after he had moved to Texas. And Megan was only about four years old. And so with all this in the background, you know, the, the, the hard feelings that would naturally occur in a situation like that between, you know, the, the parents and the family of Jim, his name is Jim, and Marion and me, I think probably the most surreal experience of my life was trying to support Marion by attending Jim's funeral, but being absolute pariah because I was the guy who took his place and, and sitting at the back of the room while Marion was in the front and they were in the motorcade and I was by my... It was just really strange and all of these feelings and all of this heartache and all of this hurt is going on and it kind of colored much of those early years of, of Marion's and my marriage and trying to raise Megan and going through all of this. And so that's in the backdrop. When we all land in Rancho Bernardo for this wedding, and there is family on, on Alex's side from New Hampshire and from Texas, and there's family on our side from Oregon and from all over Southern California and all these different places. There's family on Jim, Megan's biological father from Texas and from Northern California, and all of these people are getting together, and you just wonder, what in the heck is going to happen here, you know? Because I haven't seen some of these people in, some of them in decades, literally. 
and other people we've sort of stayed in touch with, but there was never really a coming back together again, never really a connection like that. And as this, the time was moving into, you know, getting closer and closer to the wedding, I'm thinking about these things. They're really on my mind. Because I know that Megan has always loved her gym daddy. That's what she called him ever since she was two or three years old, her gym daddy. She loved him. He was a memory that was kept alive as she continued to live with and connect with her family and her grandparents on his side. And so I knew that was in her mind. I knew that I was standing in. And there was a moment as everybody was lining up to actually do the wedding procession in where the wedding coordinator came and grabbed me and whisked me off to what was the green room for uh, Megan and all the bridesmaids. I didn't even know they had one, but she takes me to this room. And of course, all the girls are in there squealing and doing what they do. And she pulls out all the bridesmaids. She's going to go make them up with the groomsmen in their places. And she just said, you two stay here and wait for me to come get you. So here I am in this room with my daughter just looking absolutely gorgeous. In fact, did you put that picture up yet there, Frank? You can see a picture of her and Alex. It's, it's in your bulletins as well, but I thought it would be great for you to see and get a visual there. So there she is in that amazing dress, standing there. <laughs> and I've done enough man- marriages and weddings to know, you know, and you who have all done, you say, most of the time when you look in the bride and groom's eyes, what you see is the back of their head because their eyes are just spinning and there's nothing. They're just checked out, you know. They're just not really there. And as I walked in and I was finally alone with Megan in that room, I realized that's where she was at. You know, she was kind of like this and moving around and her eyes were spinning. And we said a few small, you know, talk words to each other. But then I just kind of stopped and I took her by the shoulders and I said, Megan, I just want you to know I'm standing in for your gym daddy. And she just burst into tears at that point. It was this unspoken thing. It was the elephant in the room. It was a thing that was there, but I just needed to say it. And I said, you know, honey, somehow I know that he's aware of all of this. Somehow I know that he's a part of this. And I know that you've never stopped loving him and he's never stopped loving you. And so I'm here for him and for me. And then there was just this amazing hug. And as we walked out, you know, she, and then she got really mad at me because she says, I wasn't supposed to cry. And she's doing that kind of dabbing thing and she tried to get around the mascara and everything and she was fine. And then we're walking out. But as we got right to the edge of the grass where we were going, it was an outdoor wedding. Then she just whispers, she goes, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this. You know, and she's trying not to cry. And I just grabbed her a little tighter and said, of course you can. As soon as you see, see Alex, everything is going to be fine. And she was trembling and she was hyperventilating a little bit, but again, as soon as she saw Alex, she was fine, and I passed her off and and gave her a kiss on the cheek. But that was a moment of connection. And then later on, when we were having dinner, I looked over and I saw Jim's parents sitting at their table, and I was looking for them, but I finally scoped them out. And so I waited for a moment when they were alone and I walked over there and I just pulled up a chair and sat between them. And I basically said the same thing to them, something I've never really had a conversation over with them in 20 some years. You know, I said, I I can't even imagine how you're feeling, but, but I'm here for Jim as well. And he's a part of this. And it's just like all the walls came down. You know, and we just talked. We talked for 15 or 20 minutes. We talked about recovery and alcoholism. We talked about what we're doing here at the effect because they're aware of all of that. You know, and it was just another 
connection moment when they surprised me with a father-daughter dance, because I don't really do dancing. You can ask Marion pretty much on that one, although I did dance with Marion too. But when they did the father-daughter dance, I got a chance then to tell Megan that I had the conversation with her grandparents as well. And of course, she was crying again. There were members of Jim's family that came up to Marion and me both and just expressed how glad they were that we were there for Megan. And they complimented us on what a great young woman that she's become. It was just a weekend of healing. You know, it, it was, it, that was the thing that will stick out, you know, besides the wedding itself, was this healing. At the rehearsal dinner the night before, Megan gave and, and Alex gave both Marion and me separate boxes, and in there were cards from each of them. And the things that Megan said to us were things that it was just so great to hear, you know, that we didn't mess up that badly, that she was okay, that she understood, you know, that, that she actually paid attention to some of the things that we were trying to do over the 26 years of, of raising her together. And that was another piece of this whole thing. And I was thinking about all of the twisted, long, winding road that it took to get to a perfect moment like that. Because it was a perfect moment. And Sunday morning, we sat down with breakfast, mostly with Marion's family. And I was looking around the table, and here's all these smiling faces. We're all laughing and having a good time. And I know their pasts, pasts. I know their lives. And I know all the pain and the anguish that they've gone through throughout their lives to get to that particular table at that particular moment, having that particularly much fun. And I was thinking of all the things that we go through to get to a perfect moment. That's it, isn't it? If you think on every choice that you've made, every mistake that you've made, every sin that you've committed, when it gets you to a place like you're at right here and right now, how do you judge all that? Right now, sitting here, this perfect moment, this baptism, whatever it is, and you think about all the things it took to get you here. Can you say that one thing is bad and one thing is good if it brought you here now? See, I beat myself up for years, for years and years over my divorce, thinking that I had so failed, thinking that God was disgusted with me for doing what I did. You know, a Catholic divorced person that does not go well together. And here I was, someone who was now divorced. I punished myself. I remember in my apartment, I didn't even furnish the apartment. I was there for almost three years with a futon and a bunch of boxes stacked against the wall. I didn't put a picture on the wall. I didn't put those boxes away. It was like, and I look back at it now and I say, what was I doing? I wasn't thinking about punishing myself. I just didn't care. I wouldn't let myself live. I wouldn't let myself breathe. I wouldn't let myself take the next step because of all of this stuff that was telling me how bad I was. I was thinking legally. I was thinking I'd broken the law and I'd be a felon for the rest of my life and I'd never get that record expunged. It's kind of the way it was looked at. Or because I'm a little bit OCD, I wasn't perfect anymore and I just couldn't take it. And I wanted something to change. I wanted somehow to go in a different direction. But what I started to realize, and what you probably have realized too, is that God's grace is that if you just keep breathing, right? 
just keep breathing long enough, life starts to return. It flows back again. And working in recovery, I remember the first time I heard an old-timer say that he was absolutely grateful for being an alcoholic. And I couldn't understand that. That made absolutely no sense to me. But now I understand. I get it. For him, it was his alcoholism that was the intense enough failing, the intense enough bottom that finally propelled him into a new direction in life. And for me, for my divorce, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, not my worst enemy, and I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I can be thankful and grateful for that pain that finally took me to a place where I was willing to make a different decision, to start asking the right questions of life. What are those right questions? Well, for me, it was, what does God really think of me? Is he really disgusted? What does he really think of me? And who am I that God is thinking of anyway? Who is this guy that's wondering what God is thinking of me? And what's the nature of this relationship that I have with him? How does this actually work? I questioned everything. Especially, especially whether God was defined by either law or by love or something else. See, I was raised in the law. I was raised under the law. I was taught that God loved me, but only if I obeyed the law. That's what made me lovable to God. That any of my sins, no matter how slight or how heavy, these large and small infractions, they separated me from God. I was taught that I was actually born into this separation and that I must constantly be working to mend that fence to come back to God. Kind of like starting a race at the, at the end of the line with a flat tire and you're trying to catch up the whole, your whole life to get back into some kind of grace with God. And I wondered if it was really like this at this point, having fallen to that point. Is it really like this? Now imagine my confusion when in my reading and in my searching I came across a medieval mystic, a female mystic named of Julian of Norwich. She's an amazing woman. At age 30, she had an illness that was likely to kill her And as the curate came over to give her the last rites, in that moment she had a series of visions, 16 visions, that she later wrote down. And later on in her life, some 20 or 30 years later, she became an anchoress, which was like a hermit living within the city in a cell that was added to the wall of the church at Norwich. It's an amazing life. If you want to ever read something that is really extraordinary, read about Julian of Norwich. But listen to what she writes. One of the visions that she had as she was dialoguing with Jesus in this vision. She writes, And I thought, if sin had not been, we should all have been clean and like to our Lord as he made us. And thus in my folly, before this time, often I wondered why, by the great foreseen wisdom of God, the beginning of sin was not hindered. For then, thought I, all should have been well. Don't we all think that? If sin is so bad, if sin messes everything up, if sin, if sin is what separates us from God, then why did God allow it? Why didn't he just stop it? Stillborn, in the crib. You know, just, we don't have to go through this exercise. But Jesus, she writes, who in this vision informed me of all that is needful to me, answered by this word and said, Sin is behovely. Okay, translated from the Middle English, behovely means useful. 
It means necessary. Jesus is telling her sin is useful. Sin is necessary. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These words were said full tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me or to any that shall be saved. And then I saw it was a great unkindness to blame or wonder on God for my sin, since he blameth not me for sin. And in these words I saw a marvelous high mystery hid in God, which mystery he shall openly make known to us in heaven, in which knowing we shall verily see the cause why he permitted sin to come, in which sight we shall endlessly joy in our Lord God. What do you do with that? Okay, it's not the Bible. We can throw it out if we want to. But let's stop and try to connect the dots here. Sin is useful. Sin is necessary. God doesn't blame us for our sin. It furthers somehow his purpose that we fall, that we fail, that we make mistakes, that he doesn't think that we're disgusting. He just keeps on forgiving. Or even better, God never has to forgive. Because from his point of view, the relationship is never broken. Regardless of what we do, the love is still there. He's not hurt by the things we do. He understands. Is this really true? Is this possible? I would just say resoundingly, of course, yes. What about the good news? What is the good news if there isn't a love like this? What is Jesus talking about if there isn't a love like this? That's exactly I think what Jesus is talking about. So then the next thing that should be rolling around in your brain is, so you're telling me that sin doesn't matter, I can do anything I want, right? Come on, you were thinking that, admit it. Well, Paul has an answer for you because this is exactly the line of logic that he is traveling down in the book of Romans. Take a look at Romans 6, starting at verse 1. In answer to that question that was just in your minds, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving. I put this all in the message version, so it's not going to mate with what's up there on the screens, but if you look in your, in your bulletins, you'll read what I'm reading. And I use the message because Paul's prose is so thick, it's difficult, and Eugene Peterson brings it to a place where we can just capture it better. Paul, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we... If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? This is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. And when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. Now, he makes it sound like you just flip a switch, right? All at once, all this stuff is changed. You go into the water, you come out, and you're completely changed. You're a new creature in Christ, and everything is different. But this is not what he's talking about. Because in the very next chapter, he goes into that long soliloquy where he says, oh, what a wretched man I am. All the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. Who can? He goes into that whole... You see, that's not what he means. Even though it sounds this way here, we're talking about a process here. We go into the water, we come up out of the water with new resolve, with new desire. But the failings are still there. The pattern is still there. Yes, we're supposed to grow to replace old behavior, dysfunctional behavior, sinful behavior. 
But here is the key, and this is what he's trying to get across to us. We are not going to grow past that old behavior by getting better at following the law, by getting better at obeying the law. We're not going to be able to do it that way. We need to do it by graduating from following the law at all. And that sounds so crazy. But take a look at what he says right here at Romans 7, again, starting at verse 1. He says, You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works, and how its power touches only the living. And here he's going to give us this great analogy. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives. But if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she is quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. So my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live in a new life in the freedom of God. He calls the law the mate of sin, at least in this rendition. We can't graduate from sinful behavior. We can't graduate from the failings and the dysfunction, dysfunctional patterns that we constantly repeat by getting better at the law because the law is the mate of sin. They define each other. They come from the same mindset. They come from fear. It's fear that drives our sinful and dysfunctional behavior. And it's fear that drives the obedience to the law, the fear of punishment. What Jesus is telling us is that we have to completely transform our minds. We have to get out of that mindset between sin and law and move to something completely different. Only when we graduate from following the law obediently can we actually move into a sinless or less sin in our lives. And we can only become free from the law when we finally experience God as a non-legal lover. We need to know that his love is not based on law. It's based on this relationship. It's based on loving us in a way that we can't imagine. And we're only going to experience this non-legal love of God through our mistakes, through our sin, through our failings. When we fail so badly and we're beating ourselves up and we feel disgusting and we think that God thinks we're disgusting, but we keep on breathing and we get to the other side and life returns and we realize God was still there. God was always there. God never gave up on us. We go down into the waters and we come back up the other side and life returns. And that experience shows us the nature of God's love, shows us the nature of our relationship with him. We're not going to get it any other way. If we stay perfect, or we think we do, 
How in the world are we going to have that experience of bottoming out and being carried back up again by God's love, a love that we feel we didn't deserve? Sin is behovely. Sin is useful and necessary because it routes us smack into God's graceful, forgiving embrace. The falling, the failing, is what leads us to true understanding of what this is all about. I want to read you the way Richard Rohr puts it. Take a listen. Some kind of falling, what I call necessary suffering, is programmed into the journey. All the sources seem to say it, starting with Adam and Eve and all they represent. Yes, they sinned and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, but from those very acts came consciousness, conscience, and their own further journey. But it all started with transgression. Only people unfamiliar with sacred story are surprised that they ate the apple. As soon as God told them specifically not to, you know that they will. It creates the whole storyline inside of which we find ourselves. It is not that suffering or failure might happen or that it will only happen to you if you are bad, which is what religious people often think, or that it will happen to the unfortunate or to a few in other places or that you can somehow by cleverness or righteousness avoid it. No, it will happen. And to you, losing, failing, falling, sin, and the suffering that comes from those experiences All of this is a necessary and even good part of the human journey. As my favorite mystic, Lady Julian of Norwich, put it in her Middle English, sin is behovely. You cannot avoid sin or mistake anyway. Read Romans 5 at verse 12 if you want to check that one out. But if you try too fervently to avoid sin, it often creates even worse problems. We grow spiritually much more by doing it wrong than by doing it right. You can put that one on your refrigerators. We grow much more spiritually by doing it wrong than doing it right. Doing it wrong is what opens us up into God's grace. That's why Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Not when I think I'm strong. When I think I'm strong, I'm independent. I can do this on my own. It's when I'm weak, when I have fallen, and I'm picked up again, that everything changes. That might just be the central message of how spiritual growth happens, yet nothing in us wants to believe it. I actually think it is the only workable meaning of any remaining notion of original sin. There seems to have been a fly in the ointment from the beginning, but the key is recognizing and dealing with the fly rather than needing to throw out the whole ointment. If there is such a thing as human perfection, It seems to emerge precisely from how we handle the imperfection that is everywhere, especially our own. What a clever place for God to hide holiness so that only the humble and earnest will find it. A perfect person ends up being one who can consciously forgive and include imperfection rather than one who thinks he or she is totally above and beyond imperfection. That make sense? It becomes sort of obvious once you say it out loud. In fact, I would say that the demand for the perfect is the greatest enemy of the good. Perfection is a mathematical or divine concept. Goodness is a beautiful human concept that includes us all. See, this is the deeper meaning of baptism. We just had this baptism today. Beyond the cleansing, beyond the purification rites, 
a falling down into the tomb, a falling back into the waters of the womb, into nothingness and coming out the other side, learning not to be afraid of the solid door that separates us from some of these spiritual truths that we want so desperately to know, to not fear that unknowing, but to lean into it, to let ourselves fall, to let ourselves be picked up back again, to not fear what we can't see right now. Do you know we're not supposed to be perfect in the way we think of perfection? We're not supposed to be without error, unblemished, everything understood, everything under control. That thought only comes from a legal mind. But read, I'll read, you listen, to what Brene Brown says, and I love the way she puts this. She says that one of the things that we do to numb our fear of vulnerability is we make everything that's uncertain, certain. Religion has gone from a belief in faith and mystery to certainty. I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. That's it, just certain. And the more afraid we are, the more vulnerable we are, and the more afraid we are because we're more vulnerable. This is what politics looks like today. There's no discourse anymore. There's no conversation. There's just blame. You know how blame is described in the research? It's a way to discharge pain and discomfort. We try to perfect. If there's anyone who wants their life to look perfect, it would be me, but it just doesn't work. Because what we do is take fat from our butts and put it in our cheeks, which just, I hope in a hundred years, people will look back and go, wow. (laughs) And we perfect or try to perfect most dangerously our children. Let me tell you what we think about children. They're hardwired for struggle when they get here. And when you hold those perfect little babies in your hands, our job is not to say, look at her, she's perfect. My job is to keep her perfect. Make sure she makes tennis team by fifth grade and Yale by seventh. That's not our job. Our job is to look and say, you know what? You're imperfect. You're wired for struggle. But you are worthy of love and and belonging, no matter what. That's our job. Show me a generation of kids raised like that and we'll end the problems, I think, that we see today. When we're tied to a legal mind, when we're looking at life legally through the law, we're going to have this perfectionistic view. We're going to be terrified of our sin, terrified of the sin of others, intolerant of failure, of vulnerability. To us, mostly, suffering is proof that we're doing it wrong, right? Something must have gone wrong. God must not be happy with me because I'm suffering right now. When really, suffering is proof that we're still engaged. We're willing to drop the shields. We're willing to be open, to be connected, to open ourselves up for the hurts that are going to come in life. Doing it wrong is being too afraid to risk failure, to risk falling into sin so that we can finally see just how deep the rabbit hole of God's love really goes. When we hear Jesus say, the last shall be first and the first shall be last, what do we do? We scurry back to the back of the line so that we can be first and we can get that little badge on our chin. And we miss the whole purpose of what is going on here. You know, 
The elder brother of the prodigal son, do you remember the story? The elder brother stayed home and was the perfect son. The younger brother asked for and received his share of the inheritance, went out and blew it all, finally ends up living with the pigs. And for a Jew to be living with the pigs, an unclean animal, and eating the food they ate was about as low as you could go. And Jesus used that exactly for that reason, to smack them right in the face, that this young man had done everything wrong. He was guilty of capital punishment by dissing his father. He did everything wrong. And yet, what is the point Jesus is trying to get across? The one who did it right, did everything right, who stayed perfect, who was exactly where he was supposed to be according to the law, is the one who ended up becoming bitter and angry and wouldn't come into the feast. And the one who did everything wrong gets a party thrown for him. He didn't deserve the party, not by our standards of perfection, but by his father's standards of absolute love and relationship. There was never a moment he didn't deserve the party. This is what we've got to change. This is what we've got to look at in our lives and see how deep this runs. These concepts, these ideas, this legal understanding permeates our lives, permeates our attitude, and keeps us at arm's length from everyone and from the presence of God's Spirit in our lives. Last Saturday, I got to walk my little girl down the aisle. I got to be part of a grand and really expensive party (laughs) with all that family from all those different places, all those different backgrounds, all those different attitudes. And I can sit here and tell you I didn't deserve any of it. I messed up so badly all along the way. The fact that I could sit there and have a moment like that with people who love me like that is completely undeserved as long as I continue to think legally. But see, I know better now. I've experienced God as this absolute non-legal lover. I know that he's not a bean counter. I know that he doesn't look at charts and spreadsheets. He only looks at me as his son, as he does with every single one of you. I'm the prodigal too. And so are you. We're all prodigals, doing everything wrong, and yet we're still loved, absolutely. And Father is just waiting to throw us this party. I am grateful today for every mistake, every sin, and every failure that I have perpetrated on others, not for the hurt I've caused, because it allowed me finally to feel my daughter clutching tight and holding on as we walked to her groom. Those mistakes have allowed me to be sitting here right now with all of you and having this particular perfect moment. I thank God I'm not perfect. I don't know where I'd be if I were. Let's pray. Father, help us. We can say that we know we're loved. We can say that we know that you love us. And yet, we're still so fearful. We still work so hard to do things right so that we can be accepted. Help us to see that even the sins, even the mistakes, are all going to be well if we continue to turn back to you. As long as we turn back to you, all will be well. 
everything will be well. Every manner of thing will be well. That that's the kind of God that you are. You are wellness itself. And you can't be anything else than what you are. Help us to be fearless enough to risk things, to risk the mistakes, to maybe fly a little bit too close to the sun to find out just how close we can go, knowing that when we fall, you will pick us up again on the other side. Father, we love you. We want to love you fearlessly and be fearlessly vulnerable at the same time. Help us with this moment and every moment forward to turn and face you more and more each day and to always know that we can only love because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.